you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants, here to talk about their latest release, Book. It had been going so well, and then I broke my eggshell, and entered the world as a brontosaurus, brontosaurus. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. I'm Rich Mahan, joined by John Hughes. John, how are you? I'm great, Rich. I'm excited. I love They Might Be Giants. I remember the first time I saw them on MTV. It was a late night, 120 minutes, and it was a song called, a video called, Put Your Hand Inside the Puppet Head. <laughs> and I was like, what? what? What is this and why do I love it so much? <laughs> And you helped me interview John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants in today's episode, and they've got a new release called Book, which is a book and an album, and it's pretty it's pretty unique and special and creative, just like this band. It's amazing. And you know, another video that I saw back in those great days of uh, 120 Minutes was one of the first replacements videos where it was just a static shot of a stereo speaker because <laughs> they did not want to make videos. And by the way, the replacements are revisiting their earlier days on Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash Deluxe Edition. It's a four CD, one LP collection that uncovers more than 60 unreleased demo and studio home recordings, including the band's very first demo and their earliest professionally captured concert. We're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. And out of the 100 tracks, 67 of these have never been released before. And there's a newly remastered version of the original album, plus many unreleased rough mixes, alternate takes, and demos from the band's first 18 months together. The LP included in the set, titled Deliberate Noise, presents an alternate version of the original album using these previously unreleased tracks. You can get it right now at rhino.com. Yeah, this album, this one, for all the Replacements fans out there that I know, so many of them cite this record as their favorite Replacements record. And I think that everybody who does love this record, or even anybody who's a casual Replacements fan, is going to find tons of of great material in here that they love because like you said, there's 67 unreleased tracks, so many killer demos. And if you're into this band, you're going to love this set because it just shows you right out of the gate. They had the goods and you get to hear them in their raw uncut form. And it's just exciting and wonderful. 
it is a bit of a revelation when you hear just the the nucleus forming around this band and these demos and some of Paul Westerberg's earliest demos are in here. It's it's amazing. And while we're talking about archives, uh, the Joni Mitchell archive series is rolling on with remasters of her first four albums in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Blue. The reprise albums, 1968 to 1971, debuts a newly remastered version of Song to a Seagull, along with newly remastered versions of Clouds, Ladies of the Canyon, and Blue, which, you know, no, not too shabby, was named the number three album of Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, impressive. Anyone who pre-orders the CD or LP version of this box set from JoniMitchell.com also gets an exclusive limited edition 7x7 print of the self-portrait featured on the cover art. And in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Blue, there is also a five-song digital LP that has previously unreleased demos and outtakes from the Blue Sessions. You can listen to that on any streaming service right now. And the four CD, four LP, and digital versions are also available from rhino.com or wherever you buy records. Yeah, this box set is pretty much a direct hit bullseye in just what all critics and fans consider to be her best period. Great stuff from Joni. She's having a moment, and it's well-deserved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John Flansburg is a founding member of They Might Be Giants. He shares singing and songwriting duties with his co-founder, John Linnell, and they have created a new multimedia release entitled Book. As the name suggests, Book is not only a new album of songs, but also a coffee table style book full of images and lyrics that expands the visual element of what music fans enjoy about LP album covers and delivers a truckload of imagery and lyrics in an extremely creative package that fans will really be able to sink their teeth into. By the time you hear this, it will be too late. By the time you John Flansberg, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast today. It's great to be here. We are joined today by John Hughes, our producer also, who uh, is a big They Might Be Giants fan. So, of course, he wanted to jump in on this conversation. Welcome, John. Thanks. You know the rule, Rich. When it's someone I really love, I'm going to join. <laughs> <laughs> We're always glad to have you because your insight is always very valuable. So, we are here today to talk about book, which is... Yes, it is a book, but it is also the new They Might Be Giants record. Yep. It's John, why don't we just start by you just explaining the project to us and telling us exactly what it is. Basically, I mean, it is our new musical project. It's an album in a classic sense. But as the world evolves and, you know, recording projects become sort of more open-ended in some ways, I thought, why not just really like double down on what's interesting about record albums and really make a project that has a strong visual statement as well as, you know, a strong musical statement. And, you know, this book will saddle up to your concert for Bangladesh box set pretty handily. It's like, it's very oversized. And it's a collaboration between 
a graphic designer that I've worked with very closely for over a decade now, a fellow named Paul Sayre, who is a very big deal in the world of graphic design. He's actually, in his world, he's kind of a bigger deal than we are in our world. I mean, they might be giants as like, you know, an interesting band, but we're not the biggest band in the world. Paul Sayre is actually, you know, has, you know, does all sorts of stuff for like the you know, important stuff that everybody sees for the New York Times and all these other places. And he's just, you know, he's a very respected guy. So he has sort of blessed us with his input and his creativity. And through him, we found a young photographer named Brian Carlson, who's a, also, went, I went to the Pratt Institute as a, as a young man, and he's actually a Pratt graduate as well. And he does street photography. So we basically put together this kind of, uh, it's sort of half a folio of um, Brian Carlson's street photographs, which are these very unusual, kind of eccentric photos. And then all these compiled lyrics of They Might Be Giant songs that Paul Sayre has typed by hand with an IBM Selectric typewriter from the 70s into what is sort of probably best described as poetry concrete or a concrete poetry, I guess, is the is the non-French term. <laughs> when you see it, you kind of understand it. It's harder to explain than it is to understand. But that's the hallmark of They Might Be Giants. It, it reminds me of when I was in high school and we had to take typing class. And when you're ready for the class to start, you're kind of trying to design something, like looking through. Uh, it, it, that was my initial reaction to it. But it's such a cool book. First of all, when you see it, guys, it's orange. It's bright orange, number oh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there, is, that it, also matches the uh, concert for Bangladesh set, of course, you know. Oh, right. So, color also, right. So. Yeah, but it, yeah, the book itself is like this cloth-covered, it's it's very sort of fancy kind of coffee table book, but it is 12 by 12. So it's, you know, the idea was that it could just be right in with the record collection as well. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, I think it's really interesting that Paul, you know, he did – type everything out on uh, Selectric, but it's really interesting how creative he got with it. Because when you think, okay, this is just, you're going to look at it like a sheet of paper, like everything's typed out nicely, but it's not that way. I mean, he came up with so many different ways to type on a page. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, he pours himself into projects. He did a video. One of the very first things we ever did with him, he did the album cover for a project we had called join us. And the image on the cover was this sort of monster truck, only it was a pink day-glow hearse. And I was talking to Paul about what sort of added value we could put into the album artwork. And I was like, well, you know, I always like, you know, paper when you can do things with like, a, I mean, paper arts, I guess is the term, but like giving somebody the ability to, you know, maybe make a trophy that they fold together on a piece of paper so we could give them access to a PDF or include something, you know, not that different than like, you know, the Sergeant Pepper, like extra page that comes with the medals that you can put cut out and put on yourself. And he was like, Oh, that's a great idea. So he put together a PDF of the actual model hearse. That was just something it was probably like seven inches high or something like that. And you could print it out. You could get the file and print it out on your home printer, and it would it would give you this thing that you could fold it together into to make a little model version of the cover art. And then he was like, "Now, but what if I instead of setting it to a hundred percent, if I set it to a thousand percent?" 
And then once he printed it out, he actually was like, I'm just going to make this as a full-sized thing. It's not a car. It's not a monster truck that he's making. He's just printing out this three-dimensional thing. So anyway, if you go to the video, When Will You Die?, you will see sort of the story of this crazy art project that he did. As he described it, it was unsafe at any speed. Basically, they built it. They built this thing in Connecticut somewhere. He teaches at SVA sometimes, and he got like, you know, a dozen of his students to help him put this thing together. And it really just was this very stoned, misguided project. And then at the end of it, they had this monster truck that's 12 feet tall, is impossible to move, and they didn't know what to do with it. But I won't spoil the ending of the video because it has a surprise ending. But anyway, which is all to say that Paul gets quite obsessed with the projects. He just pours himself into things in this way that is a level of commitment that I've I've rarely seen in anybody else. He just always takes it to the next level. You mentioned the term poetry concrete. Can you expand on that a little bit and what that means? As you can probably tell, like I am an art school graduate myself. And so having taken art history, one of the things that a lot of the uh, Dadaists were doing at the beginning of that movement was making these a lot of printed material. I mean, it, you know, there was a lot of uh, socialist implications of Dadaism and sort of reclaiming art for the masses. So they, they were really into printmaking and making posters and flyers and, and sort of agitproppy things. And one of the things they would do is kind of set some of their screeds into design shapes, like words. It would basically be like making a, the words of a poem or the words of a, a, a polemic or whatever they were expressing and turn them into the shape of an object on the page. Like they would, like there's one famous one that's about the Eiffel Tower that actually is in the shape. It's just words that end up forming the shape of the Eiffel Tower on the page. But there's all sorts of very powerful graphic, very crazy. Again, this is, you know, this is sort of art historical stuff, but there's no obvious term for for it besides that. I right. wish there was, you know. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because it what it does is it turns these words into in a way images themselves. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a beautiful thing. I mean, as I say like this project, you know, book is a real collaboration. I I I cannot the experience of it and what it is, I I can't diminish how much Paul and Brian put into it, you know. I mean, Paul in the midst of what his typing, which I think took him over a month, you know, I was talking to him on the phone about some something or another about the book project. And I was like, you know, this really is a lot like The Shining when Jack Nicholson <laughs> is just, you know, typing all work and no play into that typewriter. Like yeah, it just right. seemed like he was drive, kind of driving himself out of his mind. Yeah, it and, already arrived at the destination at that point. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it was, it's worth it because it's really a striking book. And the combination of the image plus just the artistic way that the lyrics are presented. I mean, it's it's a shame this is a podcast. It's what I'm getting at. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, there's, there, there are ways to see it. But yeah, it's a, it's a lot. The music is good, too. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get to the music for sure. But... How did you, you mentioned the collaboration and you did most of this last year at the height of when the pandemic struck and really put us into lockdown. How was collaborating remotely? Because I assume that's how you all did it. 
How did that affect your creative process, which was probably the first time that you had to do something remote as remotely as this? Well, there were a lot of challenges just in general. I mean, also to getting the book made. It's the first time I've directly had to deal with manufacturing in China, which is uh, just a much more distended conversation than, you know, getting something made in the United States. I mean, getting a book made in China is takes a crazy long time. Everything is coming on a boat that, you know, you basically get the books manufactured and then it takes five months for the pallet of books to float from China back to the United States. But um, it wasn't that different than a lot of other things. I mean, we do a lot of long distance. I mean, I think once email came into action, a lot of people, um, you know, we're often touring and trying to do these kind of collaborations as well. So it wasn't really uncharted territory in a certain way. It was, I think it was just more the scope of it was so large. You know, with Brian's photographs, we were really surveying his entire output of the past like three or four years. And that was pretty voluminous. And it's a big deal for him. Like this is like, this is almost like a retrospective of his work. So, yeah. uh, you know, he wanted, he wanted it to be representative of where he was at, but it was, you know, it was, it was a pleasure. I mean, it's easy working with, with talented people. I and mean, that's, that's, I have to say. Yeah. People that put wind in your sails, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Now, how did you guys, since you, there were so many photographs, did you choose photographs that went with the lyrics or went with the images that Paul had created by the way he typed them? What was your method for choosing the photographs and then choosing where they went in the book? Paul did the overall structure of the book. Paul and I went through a lot of Brian's photographs and tried to match them up as most representative of how the songs work. With They Might Be Giant songs, I think there's always something a little removed. I mean, I've, I've, I've often said we kind of celebrate the unreliable narrator. Like there's, our songs are, are not usually mistaken for diary entries. Like there's something, I wouldn't say we're like Randy Newman. I wouldn't say we're like Alice Cooper, but I think somewhere in between there's a world of They Might Be Giants that kind of exists that is not about us in a very personal way, but it is it is our obsessions and it's our ideas. And there is a point of view, but it's, it's not singer-songwriter confessional stuff. When you're looking at a, a lyric of a song of ours, I think in general, there, you can sort of see there's a notion of the narrator in there. And matching up the photographs in this book project to what we had written was actually not that difficult. I mean, sometimes, you know, Brian's photographs will have like, you know, really overt death imagery in them. You know, he's taken photographs, you know, at funeral parlors and, and all these other, you know, places. And so syncing those up with like the, the myriad of death trip songs that we've written is, was not very difficult. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. It's, you know, his, his photographs, there's something, there are a lot of people kind of breaking down. There's a lot of sort of dire circumstances in his photographs, which is kind of the nature of street photography, I think. I think there's a long history of of that kind of stuff. And it just seems like those are often the the photos that really stand out. And they just happened, it just worked. I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was definitely a process. And I think the way the photographs correspond to the lyrics is, is actually quite direct. 
But um, it's hard to sort of sum up how that thinking process went, to be perfectly honest. Well, I think that one word, if I describe what, what you guys do, it would be creative. There is nothing mundane or normal. And I say that in a positive way, not like it's mm-hmm. unusual. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's like, man, you guys are creative. How do you continually fuel your creativity and continue to output things that are so inventive? Well, oh, that's, well, I mean, that's a very kind thing to say. You know, I think, you know, we're, John and I, you know, we have this collaboration that's pretty open-ended. And I think, you know, we're both songwriters and we also work on songs together. And I think that in and of itself is kind of a healthy, I wouldn't say it's a rivalry. I mean, I think John has sort of proven to be like the, the hit maker of the band. I mean, I've gotten, I've gotten some, some good, pretty good uh, uh, shots in there, but, but, you know, John, John's output is like, you know, startlingly poppy and powerful, you know, that kind of healthy collaboration does keep you going. You know, I think when you see songwriters who work together and work apart, it's often like a multiplier effect, you know, uh, it's not just the output of, that they do together. So right off the bat, I think, you know, we're focused on just getting more stuff out. And, you know, the history of the band is is kind of, you know, we've never been particularly precious about getting stuff into the world. Like the Dallas Song Project that really, for a lot of people, was the introduction to They Might Be Giants. Was this, it, All it was is a phone machine in the kitchen of my apartment in Brooklyn, and we would just have this rotation of cassettes and we would record these demo songs onto cassettes. This was long before we had any kind of record deal happening. In the mid eighties, the music business was very much a top down kind of thing. Like, you know, the gatekeeping thing that everybody complains about was very much in, in full effect. And, you know, in the fullness of time, I think a lot of people look at dial a song and think of it as this like brilliant way to, kind of circumvent the major label thing and the whole media thing of like, you know, having newspapers or Rolling Stone or MTV, like the whole new faces idea of the music industry. We just kind of leapfrogged over it with the dial song service and just found our own audience. But the truth is for us, it seemed like much more like, oh God, this is like, you know, we just have to write more songs. You know, we got to get more out there. And it was not about, it was not calculated at all. It was just like, oh, we just, we sort of set up this little songwriting hurdle for ourselves. But it helped us. It helped us become better songwriters. And uh, I feel like, you know, that lack of preciousness sort of rubbed off in a big way for us. It was definitely a beast that had to be fed all the time. Yeah. But what's unique, and I'm going to use the word unique far too much here in this this question (laughs) slash statement. You guys have a singular voice. No one else sounds like they might be giants. You know, thank you. And that can be a blessing and a curse. And and by, by that, I mean, great. You've got a unique sound. However, you got to get people on board. And right. You guys started on Restless, right? Restless Records? Our first record came out on Bar None, which was a Hoboken label, and then was distributed by Restless. They sort of expanded. After the first album took off, we got a distribution deal with Restless, and then 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know what their collaboration was. The independent labels are, you know, it's like, it's a crazy uh, swamp of deals. You know, success can be the hardest part about being an indie label. That's what I was getting at was, especially in the late 80s on an indie label, for you guys to get on 120 minutes with your first record, that had to be very strange and, and fortuitous, I would think. Yeah, we were very lucky. Again, you know, just speaking of people collaborating with people, we did our early videos. The first half dozen videos we did were collaborations with Adam Bernstein, who has become a very successful director. He's done a lot of TV. I mean, shows that, you know, everything from 30 Rock to Better Call Saul. And just, you know, he's he's a really respected guy. And he was a young man with a lot of crazy ideas. You know, like we met him at the Pyramid Club in the basement of the Pyramid Club. And he was like, I'd like to direct a video for you. And we were like, uh, okay. And he's like, I'll do it for free. It's like, that sounds about right. Those And those videos were wildly successful at, at MTV. And who knows exactly how MTV decided anything back then. But one thing we had going for us that was kind of an, odd secret weapon was our videos were shot on film and even though they were shot on 16 millimeter film 16 millimeter film the crummiest bolex 16 millimeter looked so much more elegant and definitive and mysterious than the very best videos made on video and this is back when like the rolling stones were making videos on video and they looked so sweaty and odd and you know then like our our stuff would just come out we'd shoot it in black and white and all of a sudden like we looked like we were in a hard day's night i I think like you know in a funny way like the form of those videos was you know there was a lot of funny ideas in in them and, and i think we you know, we didn't take ourselves too seriously as, as we were doing it. I think in a way it was more the the medium than than the performance that really came across. Well, it didn't hurt that the songs were fantastic. Oh I, yeah, the songs were good and and uh, and and the performances were were yeah. truly nutty. I mean, one of the things that we didn't want to do, I mean, so often with like my collaboration with John, we're trying to figure out how to just get around the thing that we're already tired of, you know, I mean, like the, like we don't put our photographs on our album covers in part because it just seems like, well, you know, doesn't everybody put their photo? So it's like, we're already kind of working from a like problem solving point of view. And with rock videos, even though rock videos had only been around for a couple of years when we started making them, there were so many soul crushing cliches (laughs) and totally bankrupt techniques in play it was like at a certain point we're like we can't do any more lip sync videos like let's how do we do a video that's not lip sync i was like well that's going to take an awful lot of choreography so uh but but we did it and it worked out fine and but we ended up you know falling back on lip sync so it wasn't like uh we took a bold stand we were just trying to figure it out well you you guys ended up looking like the videos were directed by Anton Corbin in like these multi-million, $100,000 videos or whatever the budgets were. But it was you guys in Brooklyn with a, with a 16 millimeter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was remarkable how, how good they looked considering how tight. I mean, the budgets were truly microscopic. But, you know, we were working with very talented people. And I don't know, it, every, everything seemed very open-ended. It was just a, a very different time. It was a very different time. It was interesting because 
I've had a couple conversations with a video director that we've collaborated with a lot recently, this fellow Alex Italics, who's like a film guy in Los Angeles. One of the things I realized is that we had ideas about how to shape those videos, but they weren't particularly storyboarded. We kind of jammed on them. And I think once Spike Jones entered the scene, like he was, you know, very much in the same way that like grunge kind of wiped everything clean for a lot of bands. Like, I don't think, I think if you were in a hair metal band, I think it was just like, Oh no, it was a death knell, you know? Yeah. It was like, we are obsolete now. I think for a lot of people who were doing stuff in video, as soon as Spike Jones came along, the whole idea of like a, a clever video being storyboarded was just suddenly completely dominated. And up until then, we were doing this very sort of wild, freeform kind of art school thing that if there was any continuity at all, that seemed we were highly suspect of that because most of the most of the videos that had continuity in them were really like soap opera e like they were really melodramas and they just seemed kind of that seemed kind of corny and to be avoided of course spike jones found a way to do it that was just you know very inspired but it was it was a very fresh breeze the just to put a cap on the early video discussion i think what was really appealing is is very much like david lynch you have this comedic sense, believe it or not, despite what's going on. And yet there's this menacing foreboding uh, visual presentation at the same time. And it's kind of brilliant. Well, thank you. I think those, those videos, they really existed in their time, but they did sort of transcend the moment. There's not a lot of videos that you can look at from back then that have uh, a lot of style, a lot of their own style. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud that we actually found a way, we figured out, we got a nice balance going with that yeah. stuff. There was a, a nice lack of fog. Uh, yes. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> Although I think there might be a little bit of fog in there. <laughs> uh, so you guys have these two independent albums and then it's almost like you're called up to the big leagues to Electra for Flood, which is turning 40. Yeah, Flood is going through its midlife crisis right now. <laughs> um, well, you know, like a lot of bands, you know, we were, I feel we started the band in 82 and really started working regularly in New York in City in 83. And we did a tremendous number of shows locally. The East Village scene was happening in 84, 85, 86. And there were just new nightclub after new nightclub to play at. So we were playing... I mean, I don't think we got like 10,000 hours in, but I think we got like 5,000 hours in. So we got halfway there for the uh, that whole thing. By the time we got to Electra, I think we were very lucky to have been able to make a couple of albums that had so much success because, I mean, there were small battles to be fought with the label, but by and large, they recognized that we had already done what, they spent all their time trying to do right. in terms of breaking the band. I mean, our first album sold, you know, well over a hundred thousand copies. The second album sold probably double that. We weren't amateurs. We knew something of what we were doing and we had kind of found our own audience without any of the Saturn V booster rockets of major labels, you know, for the, the major level conversation is always interesting to me because I feel like there's so many, they, they are such a cultural pinata, you know, like I, you know, a lot of the people 
we worked with at Elector were incredibly helpful to us and, and such nice people. I sort of, you know, like one of the, one of the nice things about doing a podcast as opposed to doing a written interview is that no matter how many times I say that it's never heard. Um, uh, like no, nobody is ever going to write. And the guy from the band said the major label was very helpful because it doesn't sound like news, you know, but the right. truth is like, you know, all you read, like every single thing is like, yeah, we gave our single to the label, but these were like, no, we don't ever want to put out that. It's like, and it's like 95% of the time, like that is just not like the opposite of true. Like I, mean, I was in Electra the day the first mix of Enter Sandman came in to the A&R department. I mean, I hung out in the A&R department a ton. And I remember when Enter Sandman came in, you know, and Metallica was like, a very odd band, you know, like even in the world of metal bands, they didn't particularly fit in. They were kind of their own thing in in a very specific way. And this song comes in and everybody's just like, oh my God, this is going to be so great. This is going to be so great. This is going to be so big, you know? And it's just like, they're, you know, they're all, they're all fans, you know, they're all music fans. It's not like, you know, they didn't like music or they were trying to figure, you know, they were scheming to, you know, crush the spirit of their bands. But I feel like every every veteran act I hear about, it's like the only thing you hear is like, oh, the major label, they were so bad to us. It's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe you shouldn't have taken those drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you guys, you know, certainly you got a ton of promotion and publicity from Electra. They helped it, but, you know, it wouldn't have been anything without the music and the songs you wrote. So. Yeah, I think I think it would have been very hard for a major label to con- even conceive of what the appeal of a band like They Might Be Giants was. I mean, that was really up to us. I mean, we had to find we had to find some kind of cultural toehold in the world uh, before anybody else was going to really sign on. You know, that was what we did. You know, we we did a lot of stuff kind of the old fashioned way. We did a ton of touring, and you know, the MTV thing worked for us. So it was a, it was a very lucky time, but it was very odd. I mean, there were so many cultural UFOs at that time, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just a very different era. Indie music was not catching fire the way it would like in the nineties, you know, it just didn't have the same constituency. It was definitely music for weirdos, but there were a lot of weirdos. But you guys were right at the cusp of that breakthrough, though, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember Birdhouse in Your Soul being a buzz clip. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we got a tremendous amount of support. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, you know, Birdhouse ended up going, I think it was in the top five in the UK. My story is And we got to be on top of the pops, which was really oh, bizarre. Um, yeah, but I talk that about was great. Yeah, it felt great. It, I mean, it was like it, I mean, talk about lip sync. You like you're <laughs> rehearsing for two days to do a lip sync, you know. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was a crazy time. There were times that it felt like being shot out of a cannon, you know. I mean, we definitely uh, there was just no keeping up with it at a certain point when it was really peaking out. 
And I would imagine a lot for a lot of performers, that's the only experience they have of what it is to be in a band. You know, I mean, we had seven years of sleeping on the floor of a van to prepare us for a little bit of excitement. It was an interesting interval, but I think we knew it was not going to last forever. You know, listening to the album book, the one thing that struck me is the enthusiasm and the excitement is apparent in the music. Like you guys still love doing this for somebody that has put out so much music. How have you not gotten jaded and how do you retain your enthusiasm that enables you to create these whimsical songs that upon first listen, just lift the listener's mood. Well, you know, again, that, I mean, that's, that's very kind of you to say, I think, you know, it's, um, you know, we are much older now, but I don't think we've mellowed. I think, you know, we know the value of like a, an up-tempo song, which is not insignificant. I think a lot of times when people get older, they just think like, oh, let's slow this down. And it's like, eh, it's not always so exciting to yeah. listen to everything get slowed down. But uh, our songs are like our best efforts. You know, I mean, that's like, you know, uh, we don't put out every song and, and the songs that we put out, we work really hard on. And I think we're pretty rigorous with what we're doing. Well, you guys but, must write all the time then. If you've got a bunch of songs that you're not putting out, I mean, because you're putting out so much material. Yeah. Oh, what, the songs what? we don't put out are so stinky. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, yeah, we we you know, we're we're definitely. Uh, I think we're we you know we're kind of uptight about our output, in spite of the fact that there's a lot there. I don't know. I said this before, and I, I'm not even sure if I, if I can. I'm sure I'll land in a different place by saying it, but like. I remember a couple of years ago, I was kind of doing a deep dive on the band Guided by Voices. And, you know, the Guided by Voices had this insane output. Like for a bunch of years, they were just putting out like, you know, two albums a year and a million songs on an album. And the songs are all really short and they're, you know, they're just like pouring so much into it. And then they stopped and then they started up again like 10 years later or something. And just we're right back at it, you know, putting out a ton yeah, of stuff. Right. Like, what are they thinking? That's so crazy. And then I realized, like, this is probably a year that we put out, you know, two albums. There, I mean, there's a 2018 or something. I think we put out three albums. And, like, that's not a good idea. That's, you know, that's a terrible idea. But it's just, we just aren't thinking about it that hard. We're not calculating a career. We're just kind of doing the creative work and feel like, you know, we have this opportunity to, to make stuff. So, you know, I think we almost have like kind of a, I'm like the worst person to, to ask about stuff like this because I feel like I have a sort of a dis, dysmorphia about where we're getting professionally and what, what we're accomplishing. But, you know, I do feel like, you know, there are times when John and I will like literally like say like, still got it as, you know, in this weird yeah. way that, you know, it just doesn't even make sense. I mean, sort of just riffing on on the idea of making rock music at the age that we're at. Like most people are not making loud, ugly, guitar-driven pop songs when they're above the age of 30, let alone being above the age of 50. Well, when you talk about it, it I, it's obvious you say you're not the best person to ask about it, but I think it's obvious that you're coming from an artistic standpoint and you're writing songs like a painter paints just to paint. You're not thinking about the commerce side of it. You're making the art for the art's sake. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that I think I would hope that would be true. I think that, and the truth is, one of the things that you know I think has been very consistent for me and John is that um, there's kind of a laboratory aspect to what we're doing. There's like what we're doing is we're not making experimental music, but we are casting around to figure out new ways of approaching how to put together a song. And, you know, honestly, since we started, so many things have changed. I mean, when we started the band, there weren't really drum machines per se. Like we did a lot of four track recording in a, like a project studio that was the living room of the apartment we were in. And we shared all our gear and John had a Moog synthesizer. I had a four track TAC tape recorder and we would make the rhythm tracks for the band. And, you know, what was funny is even though we had a drum kit and we were doing this, we could sort of piece it out in a way that like neither of us are drummers, but we can, but we know what drum patterns are. We could sort of put things together that sounded I mean, maybe on paper kind of looked a little bit like Ringo Starr, but the way it came out the other end didn't sound anything like Ringo Starr. So like in a way, when we started, it was very easy for us to sound very original because our most conservative arrangement would still have this very odd sonic impact. Now we have a full band and we're still trying to figure out how to make more out of the popular song. But the nice thing is that all these other kinds of popular music have come along. I mean, hip hop music has had a huge effect on my ideas about what's possible sonically. And I think anybody who likes pop music can't help but be kind of dazzled by what hip hop has done just with like frequencies and spaces. You know, Missy Elliott has created some of the most psychedelic music ever made. I mean, if you like trippy, crazy stone psychedelic music you're gonna love missy elliott because it's just like <laughs> it's so it's so much fun so i guess a lot of times people just break this down into cultures but i don't really think of it that way i like the sound i like the music and i, I like the songs and and i think like it's amazing to me that people can still make songs in 2021 that sound new i mean there yeah. there, there are ways to do it well, I think that you're, you're, the way that you guys write lyrics certainly is something that I would qualify as sounding new to me. I mean, for instance, let's take If Day for Winnipeg right. from the new record. Right there, that title alone, like, what the hell does that mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I listen to a lot of history podcasts. So, I mean, really, you know, it, the song is about, I mean, there is a, a very short, uh, Wikipedia entry about If Day that everybody can look to. Basically, it was like any kind of bond drive that in the middle of the war that they were trying to impress upon people like, you know, you don't want our country to fall to a dictatorship. You know, frankly, it, it seems, you know, the song came together in 2020, but it seems, uh, you know, torn torn from the pages of 2021. Now, I didn't, I wasn't trying to write such a timely song. It all began as an agitprop stunt Costumes and chants from a crowd Now broken chairs and some thousand yard stairs And thoughts no one dared say out loud If day is for everyone, not just for Winnipeg If day is for everyone from now on If day is for everyone and they're coming for us for everyone from now on. 
listening to this record, you know, usually when I listen to somebody's new record, there's two or three or maybe four songs that kind of stand out and go, that was pretty cool. I was, I got to the end of this record and I'm like, damn. I mean, it's like, there's no holes in these songs. You guys are making me blush. (laughs) <laughs> this is like, this is this is very uh, you know this you guys are this is very kind you know you know we we pour a lot of ourselves into all these albums and some of them turn out better than others I felt like in spite of the pandemic we were kind of on a roll we were very close to finishing the album when the pandemic came and it just stopped our ability to do anything at all like you know there were six months where we couldn't even you know, reconvene and all this stuff was sort of trapped in this in at the recording studio and then when we finally came back, I mean, we did take the opportunity to kind of up the ante a little bit on the song selection. There's a bunch of things that could have been on the record that we didn't include. You kind of get back what you put into it. We've never done a record super quickly that came out great. You know, I mean, I think in some ways, I don't like to think of, you know, the Steely Dan model of like working really, really hard as being important, that important. I hope you can work more spontaneously than that, but I don't know. Every hit producer we've worked with, the one thing they've all had in common is they have infinite patience for recording vocals. Mm. You know, like they'll spend, like when we were working with Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley on, on Birdhouse in Istanbul, it was like, if the vocal took all day, that was nothing to them. Like they would, they would have us sing and they would, they would comp what we sang and then be like, you know, you want to replace half of it? No problem. If it takes two days, it's like, no problem. So it's like, what makes a good record? Sometimes it just seems like time to me, you know? Mm. It's just like, there's nothing wrong with pouring a lot of actual hours into it. Do you think the fact that you guys have such a rabid fan base that has stuck with you for 40 plus years, does that give you sort of a license to relax a little bit and do what you want without having to worry about... Oh wow! I th- I, I would have I would have ended that sentence the exact opposite way. Really? No, I feel like it's like a huge responsibility. Yeah. I feel like all the time it's like trying to just sort of keep up with people's expectations. I wish they would sort of go like, "Oh, this is great. We you know we've really let those guys off the hook." No, I feel very responsible to those people and very grateful that they're there. I mean they are a self-selected group of people and their interests in what we do can seem kind of narrow and, and can seem beyond. It's great that they enjoy the more unusual stuff in our output, but I'm also glad that like, we're not sort of pigeonholed as like a full blown novelty band. Like nobody's like very early on, I think that, you know, the balancing act of they might be giants is just trying to figure out how to make a song that has this unusual kind of personal oddball sensibility to it, but it actually holds up to repeated listening. You know, that's very different than making a novelty record or like a comedy record that just has like the immediate impact Mm -hmm. of uh, just being a nuts experience. And actually a good song is a very different thing than a novelty song. Yeah, we're not talking disco duck here. I think you guys have a lot in common with Devo in that respect, in Mm -hmm. that just this hugely influential, important band 
that some people that, that, you know, I call them civilians, they don't get it. They're like, oh yeah, they wear the goofy hats and they, they jump around in the video and do all the synchronized dance moves. And they, they sometimes miss the bigger picture. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that worried about being misunderstood. Every band is misunderstood to some degree. Uh, you know, a lot of bands are not that self-serious. I mean, it's actually, you know, what's interesting to me, stuff in recent years that has come out about the sensibility of Steely Dan, you know, who on paper are a band that could seem about as self-serious as any band. But, you know, the real, the thing that brought those guys together was uh, an appreciation for Frank Zappa. And I think that was something that for obvious reasons, they weren't going to, you know, in 1974, you weren't going to be like, uh, we love Frank Zappa. I mean, unless, unless you were looking to be in a very different kind of band. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, there are things about Frank Zappa that really appeal to them from a compositional point of view and from a musicianship point of view. And then on top of it, there's this weird, very specific kind of sensibility that is, you know, is Zappa. You know, John and I both grew up with Frank Zappa and we certainly knew it wasn't the musical uh, thing to point to, unless we really were trying to figure out how to be misunderstood, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and I feel like I feel like you know, in rock criticism, the big Trojan horse is people say they like Captain Beefheart when right. they when what they're trying to say is they liked Frank Zappa. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Like I mentioned earlier, Flood is turning forty. Are there yeah. plans to celebrate that? Well, you know, we we had this whole tour booked. Because we were between releases and book was taking a long time to put together not just the music of it, but also the, the rest of it, we just knew it was going to take a little bit more time. We set up, I guess, like 45 or 50 shows in the United States to just do these flood shows. Hmm. When we've played in the past, one of the nicest things about touring for us is being able to kind of set up in a city and do like a multi-night stand. So if we're in like Atlanta or New York or LA or San Francisco, or, you know, it's kind of primary markets mostly, we'll do a second night or a third night and we'll play our first album in its entirety or we'll play Flood in its entirety. And that's a way to kind of, you know, rope some recidivists back into the experience, but it's also a way for us to kind of change up our show and not have to think too hard about how we're changing it up. So we had done a lot of flood shows in the past and it didn't seem like it would be too hard. It's only half the show. It's like the album's only 45 minutes long. Right. You know, we do two sets and encores. So it sounds like, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're just like, you know, diving deep into this, you know, nostalgia well. But it's actually, you know, we got plenty of time to, uh, you know, challenge our audience with, with new material. Well, it seems, too, that you've had to reschedule some of these dates twice now at this point because of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's Well, what was wild is that all the shows sold out really fast, which was super exciting. And then once they were sold out, COVID hit and everything was just a disaster. You know, I'm really, I'm really nervous for all these venues. I have no idea how, you know, when I think about places like, you know, the State Theater in Ithaca, New York, I have no idea. It seemed like even before COVID, it was just a great venue that was already kind of on the ropes because live music is not such a big deal in the culture anymore. You know, it's not, there aren't a million bands on the road and there's not a million people who want that experience. So I don't know. I just, I just, I just hope there's, I hope there are venues 
out there by the time we get back because it's it's just been such a long interval. Yeah, it has been. Are you gonna are you gonna plan to play a lot of the book songs as part of your second set on this tour? We'll play as many as people like. You know, I mean, we always play you know new songs. I think you know we we pay a lot of attention to what works. You know, what actually gets to the back row. I mean, I think right. that's that's sort of the difference between you know some bands some bands don't want to don't want to. It's I mean it's a tough thing you know because the truth is established audiences like when you're in a legacy band you can really feel the the pull of the nostalgia act problem and how you face that is a real is a creative challenge yep don't you feel though that you've kind of dodged that bullet a little bit like when the stones go on tour nobody wants to hear the new songs but with your audience i imagine they're eager to hear the new songs uh, it might not be that different. I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I remember reading an interview with, where Mick Jagger said that if an album has more than two songs on it that, that they do in their live show, he figures that must have been a good album. <laughs> and so, I mean, they're drawing on a lot of stuff. I don't know. I'm feeling very, I've always, I've always felt very defensive about the, the Rolling Stones uh, just because they're so easy. I mean, they're kind of like the, the last like living rock dinosaur act at this point. I mean, I can't, I mean, maybe, maybe Pink Floyd is the only other thing I can think of, but it's like, I don't know. They're an anomaly. I feel, yeah. and I, you know, yeah. I feel bad that Charlie Watts died. But, oh man, everybody. You know, every, everybody, he's 80 years that. old, man. I mean, it's like, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, God bless him. Exactly. What a run, right? I mean, yeah, all what a run. Yeah, gone exactly. Because we loved him so much, but yeah. Uh, you know, man, I was thinking about that the other day, Aerosmith, maybe. Aren't, isn't that all the original but, members? But they keep, yeah, but they keep on kind of uh, breaking up. I mean, they're, you know, they've they've broken up like four times yeah, in the past true. ten years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's, you got to keep it going. It's true. Well, John, thank you so much for talking with us today. What a great conversation! Oh, it's been a blast. You know, I I have to say, I I love. I've always loved Rhino. I mean, when I heard about Rhino when it was just a record store you know, from my friend Jimmy Mack in high school, he was like sending back stuff from California and uh, just the whole spirit of it is just, it's just, it's for music lovers. And I really appreciate that. We appreciate that. Uh, what are you listening to these days? Yeah. Oh, well, I started, you know, during COVID, there's a great little community radio station in the area that I'm living. My wife and I, we have a weekender house in Sullivan County, which is near, we're five minutes away from uh, where the Woodstock site is. So there's a great little radio station here called WJFF, which is actually uh, for years and years has been water powered. It's like, it's powered by a dam. <laughs> so, so they, so the slogan for the, for the station was always uh, the best little station by a dam site. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just a cool station. And so I started doing a radio show on that station it's on Friday nights, and I post my mixes on Mixcloud. Oh. And uh, do they you know, stream? It's, it's, Can people tune in on Friday nights and stream your show? Yeah, I'll post it. In the, I'll post it in the afternoon. It's all like you know, it's a pre-record, so like you know, I put it together you know on Thursdays. Gosh, I've discovered a ton of of music on that show, like Soccer Mommy. Oh, have you heard this song by? a band called Wet Leg named called Shay's Lounge. No. It's a totally great. It's like, it is totally my song of the summer. I played it wow. on the show like twice in like two months just because it's such an excellent song. I mean, it's 
total rock and roll attitude with this woman singing. And it's just, uh, it's, it's an impossible song to explain. Like it's sort it's kind of kind of an Iggy pop thing about it. That's just like great. It's, just it's the great modern song. day peanut duck. Yes. exactly. <laughs> Growing up in a time when everybody made mixtapes and you had a 90 minute tape that had 45 minutes on each side. I think one thing that may have really helped. They might be giants is that when you're trying to fill up a mixtape and you need a minute 45, you can find a They Might Be Giants song and throw it on the end. We undoubtedly benefited from that. <laughs> That's what I thought. Okay. Theory confirmed. Yes, yes. <laughs> John, where can be- people go to pre-order book or order it if they're listening to this after the release date? You can find out everything about They Might Be Giants at our our website, theymightbegiants.com. Mm-hmm. We have a very active mailing list. We give, we actually give away MP3s of our songs on a pretty regular basis there. We just relaunched this thing. We have an app that is it's just called the They Might Be Giants app. It's at the Apple App Store. It's free. And it's a music player. And it just plays five songs. It changes every day. And it's kind of like a modern reincarnation of a dial song. And we're just about to put a whole bunch of things on it that have never been released anywhere else, like uh, radio show appearances, uh, demos of songs. It's just all going to be kind of refreshed. Yeah, if you go to the Apple Store, you can get the They Might Be Giants app for free. I know I should be pointing people towards something that they can buy, but I'm just pointing people towards something oh, that they can cool. enjoy. That's yeah, that's cool. really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a fun thing. Yet another creative idea from the minds of They Might Be Giants, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. <laughs> John Flansburg, thank you so much. And thank you, John. Thank you. Adios. For everyone who only just arrived, a quick synopsis. If you came late and missed the commotion, and you wonder what was all that, here's the recap. Sound of gathering and trembling of notes. I assure you there's a very simple explanation If you'd only be patient Thanks again to John Flansberg for visiting us here on the Rhino Podcast. They Might Be Giants' new release book, both the book and the album, are available via their website, theymightbegiants.com. Take care out there, and we'll see you next time right here on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.